but that's kind of adoption. It's like the grief and loss and hope and healing in that same hallway. And somewhere we got to meet in the middle because it's the both and right. And so, but that's walking out the hospital was grief on one end of the hallway and hope and family on the other. And it was horrible. Welcome back again to another episode of the Confident Mompreneur Podcast, where we talk to real women from around the globe about real life difficulties and triumphs in momhood, business, relationships, health, and more. I'm your host, Kiri, ready to give you real actionable advice to help you become the best, most confident version of you in all areas of your life. Let's get into it. Hey all, I just wanted to drop in real quick and let you know about our sponsor for today's podcast. The sponsor is Own Your Stigma. You guys know I talk a lot um, about my journey with mental health and a lot with our guests about their journeys through mental health. Today's episode is no different. We're talking about adoption and all of the trauma um, that comes with that as being a birth mother. So, So today we have the brand Own Your Stigma, which is a clothing and they've also got like some coffee mugs and stuff um, brand that talks about mental health. So they call themselves an apparel project with purpose. So they've got some adorable sweaters and t-shirts and coffee mugs and other things related to mental health. And a portion of those sales go back to mental health nonprofits. So if you guys are interested in getting some cute, mentally ill, girly shirts and sweaters and coffee mugs, um, go check out the link in my bio for the podcast and then use my code confidentmom15 to get 15% off your order. Thanks for being here, guys. Hello. Hi. Well, thank you so much for coming on today, Ashley. I'm so excited to meet you and hear about your story today. Yes, this is amazing. And I'm so glad you reached out. This is fun. Yes, I'm so excited. So uh, do you want to just kind of get us started here by introducing yourself a little bit about you, your family, your work life, all of that stuff? Yeah, so I am here in Utah in Salt Lake City. It's beautiful weather here right now. The mountains are gorgeous. Perfect time of year, my favorite. Um, My husband and I have been married almost 15 years and we have two kiddos that we parent um our daughter ty who could fly and our son oliver and um and that's been really fun uh, the kids are fun and we're at fun ages right now that we really love and um and i'm also a birth mother i actually motherhood found me through um, placing a son for adoption when i was 26 so um i have an older son that we're just navigating these open adoption relationships with and he'll be 18 um next year, uh, next spring in just a few months actually. And so we've been in this journey for a long time, um, through complicated parenting and motherhood. Um, and through a lot of that journey and things that I have learned and unpacked, um, through motherhood and grief and trauma really led me to want to serve, um, women like myself who found themselves in these unplanned and unintended pregnancies and, adoptions plans were made and now just trying to navigate in the aftermath. So we're doing post-placement care and adoption education for um, all of those across the country and trying to bring some awareness and reform to some of the systems and processes. So that's, it's, I mean, I don't know. I don't know how, I didn't have anyone advising me, telling me that doing like your heart work is your own trauma work to serve others when you're reliving your own stuff over and over again. But that's, that's where it led me. And so here we are. <laughs> and I've been doing that for about 15 years of my 18 years post-placement. Yeah. Wow. That's incredible. I didn't realize you had been doing it for that long, but I mean, it's incredible that you've been able to do that and put in the work in yourself to be able to do that. Cause I get it. That's what I do too. I'm a person who I always um, am talking about my traumas and it's like, you know, it's good because it makes you really process and think through things and, you know, you can't just 
wallow in those feelings anymore. You have to go through it. But I do appreciate that you're doing that now and, you know, bringing so much attention to this. Um, I think it's an area that kind of gets overlooked a lot. Um, yeah. So. I'm really glad that you're doing the work and I'm excited to hear your story. So do you want to just like start us off um, talking about kind of what it looked like to find out that you were pregnant and kind of the process and your feelings and how everything went after that point? Yeah, so I was 25 um, when I found out I was pregnant and I think that's one thing that's so interesting because people are like, oh, you were so old and on paper, you know, you, you could check all the boxes and had a job and had, you know, some of those things. But I think that's a misconception. A lot of women that do end up placing their children for adoption are in that older range, you know, teen moms and things we see on TV have really kind of warped our perception of what <laughs> it really looks like. Um, but the women that we work with nationally are all, you know, 25 or older. And so I was 25. And it's so interesting because there were so many things about being that age and being finding myself pregnant that I was like, I still like felt like such a little kid, so insecure and so scared because I knew I had, you know, quote unquote, done something wrong. And because I grew up here in Utah, I had a lot of um, religious culture, mm -hmm. um, pressures that maybe aren't the same for a lot of people. I know, um, there's a lot of um, religious, cultural things across the country that a lot of women face pressure from, and especially here in Utah. Um, and then you just have the family pressures and all the things. And so when you find out you're pregnant in those kinds of spaces, you know, unwed and, um, it's just terrifying. It's terrifying. And in a space where it also feels like there's so much shame attached to it and that you've like done something wrong, you know, that you want to keep it a secret. And so I actually, my journey to adoption started at an abortion clinic um, and I was two weeks too far along here in the state of Utah. And mm -hmm. so when that decision, when that option was taken off the table for me um, for being too far along, then I was led to adoption. And uh, when you're kind of in that headspace, it's kind of... Even every, even everything that you believe morally and things like this, when you're, when your back's up against the wall and you're making fear-based decisions, your reality is I'm pregnant and I need not to be, that's all you can think about. That's the only reality, you know, and there's only certain things that you can do to, to help that reality go away. Um, and so once I walked out of the abortion clinic and I was still pregnant, I was trying to make these decisions. And now I was like, well, crap, now I'm pregnant and I have to be. And so now what do I do? And, um, and so there was a lot of just processing and secret keeping and hiding. Um, you know, I look back now, I think there was a lot of little tender mercies in my pregnancy that made it easy for me to protect myself, maybe even from people that would find out that would not be helpful for me to have them know in this situation, <laughs> Um, you know, it was winter in Utah. And so I could be as bundled up as I needed to be with the snow and the big coats and the big sweaters where I could hide my belly. And, um, you know, I didn't gain a lot of weight. And I think that was such a blessing in disguise because I, I would much rather people just be like, oh, she's just a little bit fat now. <laughs> I think it was just like, those kinds of things really were such a gift to me in the app. When I look back now, I'm like, I don't know how I could have done it because when everyone had to start finding out my parents and people that were really, really close to me, um, for them to carry that burden for as long as I had to carry the burden would have been a disaster for our family. Like I, it was really a gift that I was able to keep it a secret for, um, the other people involved. It shouldn't have to be that way. That's not necessarily fair, but for me to have been able to function and get through it, it needed to be that way. And I was really grateful for some of those little tender mercies during my pregnancy. So um, that you could have that time to process yeah. for yourself before you're bringing yeah. it to everybody and their judgment, but also yeah. not having yeah. that maybe on you for as long of a amount of time. Well, and it was carrying, <laughs> carrying a secret pregnancy for nine months. It's a lot. It's a lot. And I would not wish that on anybody because it is so hard, but I definitely think that there are things that 
are harder with everyone else's opinions and judgment. I mean, facing society in an unplanned pregnancy is why women do keep things in secret and make the, and hide things and consider abortions and things like that, because people are, it's so, it's impossible. It's so hard. And so when people's opinions, when people had to find out people is because this baby was going to come whether I was ready or not. And I couldn't hide forever. And so when decisions had to be made and I did need some help, um, when those things started to come out, it was very difficult and it was a lot. Um, I think when my parents finally found out I was already like seven months pregnant and they lost their minds about it, they couldn't believe that I was so far along. And so it was a shock to everybody, but again, a gift that we only had to deal with everyone's <laughs> stress and opinions and emotions about it for a shorter amount of time. Um, and I think adoption just came up very quickly, very early on when my parents found out, um, even though it was so late in the pregnancy, very early on, I think that was the consensus that we wanted to make an adoption plan. I don't know, you know, I look back now and I don't know how much of that, there was, I definitely had my own selfish reasons why I did not want a parent. I mean, and I, I will admit that all day. But there was definitely heavy influence on how other people were going to handle it and feel about it and um, what they wanted me to do, what they thought I was capable of doing. And that influence just feeds into this when we're in crisis care and chaos care with these women. Um, those those things play a role in our decision making. And so um, from the time I found out, by the time I told my parents, seven months along, I had my very first doctor's appointment with my very first ultrasound. So I had my very first bit of um, prenatal care, um, picked a family, sent them a letter, let them know they were gonna have a baby on uh, like March 10th or something. And he was born in April. <laughs> so it was less than a month. So we had all the stuff that had to get done in a very short amount of time. So we were busy, we were doing filling out a lot of paperwork. We were going through a lot of profile books, a lot of doctor's appointments to try and kind of make up for all of this process that is normally happening over months and months and months. And we did it in a matter of two and a half. Um, and so that didn't give me a whole lot of time to understand or process or ask a whole lot of questions about adoption. Um, I was definitely taking the lead of what my social workers and stuff were telling me. Um, you know, none of, none of my family members had been in this kind of situation before. So we were all just taking the lead of our professionals and trusting what they were telling us. And, um, and then he was born and, and the hospital's a whole, it's a whole other thing. But through that whole pregnancy, I, there was so much fear and so much shame, but there were definitely little gifts and, and blessings and little ten of mercies along the way that, that allowed me to be able to get through it. Yeah. I'm sure that was like scary and you're sitting there in your own shame and worried about the judgment of everybody else. And as much as we would like to say, like, we don't care about other people's opinions. Like, of course we're going to care. Of course we do. Yeah. Especially when it comes to like our family or our close friends or those types of things. And you were already dealing with all of the metal mental ramifications of what was going on and trying to decide what you were going to do and everything while dealing with this physical aspect of things that's happening too I can see why it took a so long to get to the abortion clinic because you're like trying to unravel all of this in your mind to begin with and then once you get there it's like okay now what do I do where mm -hmm. where do I go because again I feel like adoption is always listed as an option out there. But if I was in that situation, I wouldn't even know where to start to begin with that kind of a yeah. process or what it would look like or anything like that. So well, and it's so interesting too, because when you when you look at people's understandings of adoption, so many people in society across the country hear adoption and they think about like foster care and think about state care and things like that. And they don't really domestic infant adoption with an open adoption option and stuff isn't the first thing that comes to people's minds when they're in these spaces and so you're really either am I going to carry this baby to term or not and then am I going to parent or not and so having these kinds of conversations about are you going to parent you're going to choose somebody else to parent is a conversation that's left out of this all the time 
Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and was an open adoption even available at the time? Was it an option that you talked about really, or was it closed and that was it? So openness started to be like, and so I placed in 2006. So I had had a birthday. So I was 26 at the time Derek was born. My son's name is Derek and he, um, and so openness was talked about, but openness, you kind of were on a scale back then where it was, you were either open, semi-open or closed. And now you're just really open or closed and you're just on some scale of openness. So openness was talked about, but it was like, you can't exchange personal information. So the agency was always there for mediation. So like with correspondence, if they wanted to send a letter or a picture, they would mail it to the agency. The agency would call me. If I felt like I could go pick it up, I would go pick it up and then take it home and open it. And then I could write if, back if I wanted. And so it had this middleman all the time going mm-hmm. back and forth. Um, but as far as like really understanding or having any knowledge about what openness and adoption was going to look like. I mean, if you would have told me, you know, 18 years later that my son was going to come and have sleepovers with my family, I would have thought you were crazy. Like, I know that is not the kind of prep work that you're getting when you are in the throes of making this decision. And so they're presenting openness as this beautiful and amazing thing, which it definitely has, um, has those components to it. But they're just talking that like surface level, you can have pictures or a letter if you want, Mm. you know what I mean? And, and the openness of having like access to like original birth certificates or medical records, if the child needs that when they're older, you know, things like that are what openness was pitched as in this right to information. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it's gotten so much more intimate and personal and, um, And that comes with a lot of its own challenges, but there's so many amazing things about it. Yeah, definitely. That's, yeah, I, I remember thinking that open uh, or like even semi-open was not really the same definition of openness that we see now where, you know, like you're basically co-parenting with your birth mother, you know, to some degree. I have a friend um, that their oldest daughter is adopted and they're very close with their birth mother. And she has another daughter and the the girls are super close and, you know, it's just, it's wonderful to see. But at the same time, like my grandmother um, got pregnant when she was very very young in her teens and back then that was like even more shameful absolutely yeah she got sent away for a while to have the baby and I didn't even know about this older sibling of my mom's until I was already married at that point um and then all of this genetic testing came along and started connecting all of these people again and so we actually have now a connection with that older daughter that was yeah um when she was young but yeah the system has changed dramatically even over the time since your son was born yeah I feel like there's still a lot of the same issues there it's just starting to kind of come to light more because I think people are talking about it more Yeah, I think it's been interesting when you look, you know, through that time, when you're looking through that baby scoop era through the 60s and 70s, when Mm -hmm. women were sent away to maternity homes and adoptions were closed, Mm -hmm. um, you know, we started to change the systems a little bit because we learned how harmful that was. But I think what we did was just got better at selling the narrative a little bit where (laughs) back then, you know, it was like, your mother doesn't want you. And so all these families were like, well, of course we want to take these children that aren't wanted. And now the narrative is she loves you so much. So she is going to give this baby to, and they're like, of course we want to take this baby, this love so much. So we have, we've just kind of gotten maybe better at selling the idea where people are more open to openness. But I do know that with the thought of co-parenting that scares a lot of adoptive parents away from wanting to kind of have an open adoption. And we're not co-parenting, like, you know, we relinquish all of our rights we can have open adoptions and be very close, but we're not in the throes of parenting the kiddos that we relinquish. Um, and so for adoptive families, well, so many prospective adoptive families come to the table going, 
I don't want to like share, like, you know, it's not a divorce and you're co-parenting with somebody like it is a true separation of heart and soul and parental rights Mm -hmm. um, that are given to somebody else. That is true. Yeah. I didn't think about that. So kind of speaking on that, when you had Derek, you were sitting in the hospital and you had to sign away those rights. You had already chose the family, like what, a month prior what was that like for you once you actually gave birth? Because I know, you know, as a parent giving birth, the rush of hormones, the feeling of the baby, like there's so much there to have to like work through. It's totally different than, you know, when you're pregnant and it's just like this thought of a being, but not really <laughs> a being yet, you know? Mm-hmm. I, and there's so much I wasn't even, because Derek was my very first pregnancy and baby. And so there were so many things that I didn't know and couldn't prepare for that didn't really make sense to me until my husband and I had our first. So my first child after I had placed Derek, then all there was a lot of stuff that clicked and made more sense. Um, after she was born, um, you know, I went into this, like, I don't want to hold him you know, I, I tried to kind of make this birth plan of like, what would be the easiest, like you kind of in, in that kind of chaos care, you kind of switch, uh, for survival mode into like surrogate mode. Like I'm carrying this baby for them. You're trying to detach emotionally. Um, but I was already attached. I mean, he was my son. I'd been, you know, carrying him for nine months and it's just surprising how quickly that instinct kicks in when that baby is born and I, um, I had invited them to be at the hospital. Um, they weren't in the delivery room with me or anything. Like I was like, ew, no, like I had no idea what was going to happen to my body. To, like I had never done this. What was going to happen? I was like, I don't need a show for that. But, um, so it was just the doctor and the nurses and it was so fast. He just came right out very, very easy labor. But as soon as he came out, I like reached up, was like, give him to me. Let me hold him. And as soon as I pulled him to me, I was like, oh crap, I wasn't going to do that. And I couldn't stop myself. Like before I could even think about it, I was pulling him to me mm-hmm. and I knew him and he knew me and we just, but it's just, you know, that first newborn cry, that's such that sacred cry of those mm-hmm. newborns. Like I knew that there was a woman on the other side of the door of the delivery room listening to that first cry at the same time that I was. And I was just like, and in that moment, we were connected forever. Like this invisible string between her and I just linked us together mm-hmm. um, through through this baby. And it was, um, you know, again, I I should write a book really on all the takeaway things I've learned now that I didn't know that, but I look back at some of my time in the hospital um, and things that you would do differently if, if you would have known or understood, you know, the process and things like that. But um, I wanted to make sure like that they had the opportunity to attach and bond and all those things. Um, you know, so they went down to the nursery with them and did all his feeding. So i I wasn't breastfeeding obviously. And um, had them just spend as much time with them as possible. So during the day, there were so many people in and out of my room, family members. And, you know, he had two other siblings, um, mm-hmm. with this adoptive family that I had chosen and they had cousins or grandparents and all these people coming in and out. And, and I didn't know that that was a lot then, like it was, a it was a lot, but I, you know, was just like, Oh my gosh. And I, you know, I, obviously my hormones were coming in. I was trying to dry up my milk as quickly as possible. Like all of these things were going on and all these people were in and out of my room and bringing him in and then going out with him. And, but at night, um, when everyone left, I just, I just held him and memorized his face and cried over him and begged for forgiveness and prayed over him and all the things I just every second that I had where it was just him and I, where I was just his only mom and it was just me and him where we got to have these just such sacred moments, conversations that I had um, with him that were so special. And then the morning they'd all show up to be there again. And um, in Utah, they have you sign papers like as early as 24 hours after giving birth. So emotionally and hormonally and all of the things it's, there's not a whole lot of leveled out um, mm-hmm. 
thinking and process in that. So they typically like to have you discharge and relinquish your rights at the same time. So you leave the hospital, um, say goodbye to the baby, leave the hospital, and then the family can come in and get them all ready to take home, go through their like car seat testing and, you know, get their packages of diapers and all these things. And so you don't have to do it that way, but they, and you don't know that you don't have to do it that way, but they, that's how they kind of like to move the process along. Uh, so the nurses came in and I had my mom and dad in there with me. And there was like a, my caseworker that was reading the paperwork that I had to sign my, re my termination of rights and my parents. And Derek was just sitting over there in the crib and it was horrible. It was horrible. I had the, I was sobbing all over my paperwork. The nurse, I mean, I'm almost 18 years out and I can't talk about the hospital without just falling, be just completely falling apart. Um, there was like witnesses in there that were crying and I'm like, you need to lock it up. Like you're here to witness the signatures. Your emotions are killing me. Like they're making it worse for me. Like it was a disaster. I didn't hear anything that she was saying to me about the paperwork. Mm -hmm. I was like, I don't even know what half of these words mean. Like, I'm just like initialing things. And I had gone over the paperwork ahead of time because I knew it would be like that. But mm -hmm. in the moment, it was just like, what are we doing? Like, what are we, what is happening? And you sign the paperwork and then um, I was able to get dressed and then you, they're like, you know, you can take a minute and say goodbye. And I just, just looked at this, my son in this crib and I was like, I don't know if I'll ever see him again. Like, it was just like trying to memorize everything and say, like, how do you say goodbye? It was horrible. Mm -hmm. um, and so we walked out, my parents and I, and I'm a 26 years old. So like I am walking out and we're just the saddest, just the, deepest sadness and loss and we looked down the hallway and at the very end of the hallway was all of his family this new family with all these balloons and celebration and it's a boy and all these gift bags which is amazing like but that's kind of adoption it's like the grief and loss and hope and healing in that same hallway and somewhere we got to meet in the middle because it's the both and right and so but that's walking out the hospital was grief on one end of the hallway and hope and family on the other and it was horrible um but seeing them then right then in that moment, um, his mom and I have talked about this before, but I'm just like, I hated you in that moment. Like I locked eyes with her and I'm like, I hated her. And it, she just was, represented everything that I just had signed away and was walking away from. And I just, it was, it was so hard. And just like right then my dad was like, I feel like I'm leaving my grandson's funeral. And that was mm -hmm. it. Like he carried out his 26 year old daughter. Like it was it was horrible yeah I think the way that you said that though like the combination of the grief and the hope all in that one hallway I think really that's life in general is like the duality of things like that you can feel both things simultaneously you can feel the grief and the loss because it basically was like a death to you. You didn't know mm -hmm. if you would ever see him again, mm -hmm. but also getting to see this beautiful family that you had chosen and, you know, all of that family, the mm -hmm. cousins and the grandparents yeah, and yeah. stuff that were all coming in and out. But, you know, seeing that he had this beautiful life ahead of him, but also knowing that you may not get to be yeah. a part of it all at the same time. Yeah. I think that understanding of adoption that gets missed so much is that as we're, you know, quote unquote, building these forever families, we're separating families first. And we have to acknowledge how we got to the family building piece um, in the grief and loss and separation. And I think that it's, um, it's really tough for people to sit in because we can see it in the aftermath. We can see the family and celebration and the love in the aftermath, but we're missing this whole piece that, of how we got here to begin with that is so important to talk around. Well, and you talked a little bit about how they're they're trying to like switch the narrative to like the, the birth mother loved you so much that she wanted to give you a better life type of narrative, but there's still so much wrapped up in it of like, you were selfish to give up your baby. You know, you, there's like all of these other little things that are being thrown at you in that moment too. You're not just getting to focus on the loss of your son but also like the the judgment part of those and what yeah. you're walking away from too and yeah you know you're gonna have to face that when you get out too on top of the trauma of losing your baby 
Yeah. So you come home from the hospital, you know, and you're, I mean, my milk's come, everything about my body says that I'm a mother. Everything about my body now that wasn't before is now saying that I'm a mother. My milk's coming in. My hormones are trying to balance out. I'm still wearing my, you know, super sexy mesh underwear from the hospital and like, you know, and I'm, and I'm healing in this little trailer bathroom and I'm just, um, so the trauma of just everything about me is different. Now it changed me to the core of who I am. I'm a mother that, but in 24 hours, I signed over paperwork and now I'm a birth mother that can never be undone. And now what, now who am I? And so now I'm in this completely split identity of trying to figure out who I am and what's happening and what's next. Cause I can't go back to the life I had before because I'm too different. It just changed me too deeply, but I'm a mother, but I'm childless. So I have this ambiguous loss of not being really able to understand. So I then just right then I'm disenfranchised in this grief and not being able to really know my place in it. And that moment that every birth mother hits after that paperwork is finalized. It's like, well, what the hell now? What, like, what did we, you know, but at that point you're in it. Yeah. Well, and you're right. You're, you're changed. You're mentally changed. You're physically changed everything. And it's hard to like navigate that when, you know, you're going through that grief. What was that process like for you as you kind of moved away from that and like into your life knowing you know that you had kind of left that behind but also like what was it like moving forward with you because I know you said that you have a good relationship with your son and his family now but I'm sure that that was not an easy path to get there moving through your grief and like that anger that and kind of resentment that you held for his mother and all of those feelings and, you know, trying to figure out where you fit in and everything. Yeah. You know, and I think there's different seasons for sure through 18 years, different mm -hmm. things that have popped up for us that have been harder for us to uh, see eye to eye on. Um, because you always do have, there's always a power struggle because I don't have any rights, but I'm involved emotionally. And so... Um, but I'm all, I never really always kind of walking on eggshells because I have something to lose if I overstep in any kind of space, because then I lose, lose access to my son. And so we're always kind of in a space where we're not sure how much we really get to be in it, even though we're invited in it. And so it's really complicated to navigate in the openness. But for me, I think one of the biggest challenges was that after everyone wanted me to, and, and a lot of that had to do with like religious beliefs. A lot of that had to do with just my family. We'd still been keeping so many secrets from so many people, very people on my end knew that this has happened. And so it was like, the narrative was you've done such a selfless and beautiful and amazing thing. And you have a second chance at your life and you've given this gift. And so you can move forward and start over and kind of just get over it and move on. Mm. Well, that wasn't happening for me. None of that matched what I was going through. And so I was suffering in so much silence because every time I would try and bring it up or say something, the gaslighting in that kind of space to try and cover up um, any of the loss or the realities of that was covered up immediately with this toxic positivity and narrative that everything is fine. And it wasn't. And so the self-destruction for me was very... Um, very secret and very lonely. It was so lonely. Um, and so for me, that was just a lot of doing anything that I could to numb what I was feeling to try and match because I just kept hearing the narratives in my head that I'm supposed to feel a certain way and I didn't. So I would numb anything to not feel the pain that I was feeling, which obviously led to a lot of substance and a lot of self-destructive behaviors. Um, but for me, that didn't change. I mean, it was five years of that. So at that point, I'd had no contact with the family. So I was in a, such a self-destructive trauma <laughs> mm -hmm. cycle that I was just, I was stuck. And so it wasn't until a failed suicide attempt, um, time in a mental hospital um, across the country that really kind of, really unfortunately and 
fortunately was the space and the place that I was able to really unpack and process what had actually happened and how I really feel about it versus what everyone told me I was supposed to feel about it. And I'll tell you what, there's something really powerful when you actually have a name for it, then you know how to get the kind of right kind of help. When you have, you get the right kind of meds, you get the right kind of like those things, as much as people want to shy away from getting the diagnosis and getting the realities and doing the work is such a gift to be able to really tackle what's going on. Um, because I would not be sitting here. I would not be sitting here. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I 100% agree. I went through something very similar, um, a big traumatic experience, multiple in a row actually. And I ended up in that very dark traumatic space where it felt like, you know, I had to hold it all in to myself throughout everything uh I mean I I do have a supportive partner and family and things but I still felt so much shame wrapped up in that that I like held it into myself and same thing uh, an attempted suicide and a time in the mental hospital and yeah I tell people that was one of the best things that ever happened to me because it it helps to give me perspective helps give me a diagnosis medications to help me move forward so I yeah yeah I am so sorry and that positive that toxic positivity is awful yeah I hate it so much (laughs) I know I I remember when I was doing my time in the hospital as, as things started to click and make sense and we were, the problem was too, is that I'd buried myself under five years of shit. So to even get to the original trauma, there was a bunch of other trauma that I had done that was self-inflicted as I was trying to heal from this, that I had to fix and take care of. So it was, it was a lot of digging, um, digging out of the hole, but I just kept sitting there like, why didn't anyone tell me like, I was so mad. There was so much anger that like, why didn't anyone tell me that I was going to feel this way? Or why didn't anyone prepare me? Or why did everyone just blow me off or ignore the floor? And everyone's like, well, what did you, you know, I have so many people from the outside that don't know. They're just like, well, what did you think it was going to happen? You gave your baby to some stranger. And I'm just like, I know, but that's not how it was sold. Like, and I know that sounds so but when you're in such a fear-based position, you're so easily manipulated and not, you know, and I was like I said, there were definitely things that I had a lot of clarity on at the age that I was in the things that I wanted and didn't want. However, those things still were not the narrative that was honest or clear. And so I spent so many years just so angry that no one told me that I was going to feel like this. And then it got to a point that I just, so we just stopped talking about it. Right. And we just pretend like we just, cause grief and trauma. Yeah. And grief and trauma lie to you and make you think that your story is so unique that no one will ever understand you, that it's so different than every other story that no one will ever be able to understand you. And you're a one-off situation. And that's not a commonality that happens. And so, no, so we just sit in silence and suffer and don't talk about it. Um, and now I can't, you know, I can't spit without hitting someone that has a tie to adoption <laughs> in some way or has some lived experience, you know, the nuances now are endless. And so I think that was a really big thing for me coming out of some of that at that time. Um, and then it felt really good for a long time. Then it felt because I had a lot of support and I had a lot of help. My husband and I, you know, I have an amazing husband and partner. Our kids are awesome. Um, and then we were able to open back up our relationship and start building, you know, that foundation of relationship. Um, but you know, now every year it's something different. One of the things about a trauma like adoption is that it's ongoing. It's never over. Um, it's not something that happened in the past that we can work through and grieve through and process through. There's no closure. So that it's, we're constantly living in it. Um, and there would be times that Derek would come over for a visit and he would leave and I would be on the bathroom floor feeling like I was at the hospital all over again as he walked out the front door to his mom. And, and, and I didn't, you know, and there was no reason to feel like I was never going to see him again at this point, but it's still that constant trigger of him leaving and will I ever see him again? And so 
And then sometimes he'll come and hang out for the weekend and it's not a big deal. I'll be like, you know, see you, but you know, love you. And I'll see you again soon. And sometimes it's not a big deal, but this is an ongoing for life trauma that we're just repeating over, over and over in some form or capacity. And so now we're in a stage where Derek's turning 18 and now what, like, we're not really in an open adaption anymore. We're just trying to figure out how to have a relationship as two adults. And so now it's different, like, mm-hmm. because we don't have the middleman of like his mom navigating as much of our contact and relationship. And I don't know, we're figuring, like, I'm sure we'll screw that up a bunch of times too. Like, I don't know, we're figuring it out, but that is one thing about adoption trauma that is not talked about hardly as the adult adoptees talk about it a lot more, but adoption starts with relinquishment. It doesn't end at relinquishment and it is for life. And so we relive this, especially if you're active in an open adoption of any kind, it's a constant thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I can imagine how like, I mean, parenthood is kind of already that way where you're always having to like adjust and relearn, like as they get older, as things change, whatever, but I'm sure it's even more complicated when you're also trying to deal with all of that, you know, those different levels of things. But so when did you first get to see him again? And what was that first meeting with him like? Um, <laughs> so after kind of like that five-year mark and the suicide mm-hmm. stuff, um, my husband and I had our daughter, Ty, and that pregnancy was so impossible. It was so hard because, mm-hmm. um, all I knew about motherhood was pregnancy. I didn't know how to be a mom. I didn't even know anything about bringing a baby home from the hospital. All I knew was how to give birth. Mm-hmm. And so emotionally, I was not attached to my pregnancy at all emotionally because I mean, why would I be mm-hmm. <laughs> right? So yeah. my body is responding to, we don't get attached because this isn't going to stay. And so we, um, I mean, I was working like ridiculous, like 70 hours a week or something at the YMCA, working with the kids, doing their summer camps. Like I was just in work mode. I was in total denial that this was happening. I mean, I even remember just panic, full on panic attack when my husband's like, let's call your parents and tell them we're having a baby. And I was like, no, we cannot tell my parents. They'll be so mad at me. <laughs> and I was like, oh, wait. This is different. <laughs> they don't have people don't have to be mad at me. Like people were celebrating, excited. We want to throw you a baby shower. And I was like, what is happening? It's crazy. It was crazy. Yeah. By the time our son came um after that, I was not like that at all. It was just that one pregnancy mm-hmm. after. And then after that, I got over it completely. But it was like, it was crazy. So then we had our daughter. I mean, I remember even in the hospital, like I would make my husband like follow the nurses. I was like, last time you took one away and it never came back, go follow them to the nursery and make sure that that baby comes back here. I mean, I was, I knew I was a crazy person, but, um, we, after we had her home and I was just like, I, there were things that I finally allowed myself to feel about motherhood that I knew that I had missed with my son all these little firsts that I was experiencing with my daughter, just cracking me wide open. And it was so painful and sad, but it was just like, I want to see him. I want to know him. I want him. Like, I just knew like, even then that I was like, I have this pull, like I need to have him in my life. And so we're like five years out or whatever. Derek's like five at this time. And I wrote an email to his mom, an old email. I dug through all my stuff, my old stuff. And I had an old email and I really said something so stupid, like email in my email. Like, I don't know if you remember me, but you're my kid. Like, what do you like? So dumb. I really was like, um, I, my name's Ashley. I don't know if you remember, like, come on. But I really was you like, what do you say? Your kid, you know? yeah. <laughs> like you have my kid, like, remember that thing, that, you know, <laughs> what do you say? It was so awkward me right so I didn't know if I was even allowed to come back and ask to be there like I didn't know I didn't know if they wanted me there I had been gone for so long and all over the place and so um I just didn't know what to expect but I just knew that I had to reach out and I mean it was so fast I want to say like I mean it's been so long now but like within 24 hours 
Uh, they were just like, yes, we've been waiting for you. We would love to see you. Um, let's go meet in a neutral place. And I have a picture of Derek when he's like five of us out in front of a Chick-fil-A for the first time. <laughs> he's meeting my little daughter. You know, I'm reconnecting with his mom and we're just sitting there at lunch, just kind of looking at going, okay, well now what? Like now <laughs> we're here and now let's figure out how to move forward. And there was definitely, it took time to just rebuild trust in each other and get to know each other. I was a stranger. Come on. Like, even mm -hmm. though they were raising my child, that was biologically connected to me. I was a stranger. My husband was a stranger. They didn't know anything about me and my lifestyle. I didn't know anything about them. I picked them out of a profile book, even though they were a part of this, like the most important people in this whole process to me, I still, they're still strangers to me. Like it's mm -hmm. wild. And so my own son, even in so many ways, you know, it's a really weird thing to know that you're the mother of a child and not know anything about your child. Like I, it's just so crazy. And so we spend yeah, a lot of time body and your soul knows them, but you don't actually know them, but I'm not, but I'm not his parent. Like yeah. my two that I parent, I know every look, every cry, every sound, <laughs> every smell, every tantrum. I know everything by just, but Derek, I wasn't his parent. I wasn't in the throes with him. Like to my core, I could feel like I knew his heartbeat, but I didn't know anything. I didn't know what he liked for breakfast. Like, you know, those little things that are just like, just so easy for me with my other kids. And so it took a long time to just meet in public places, trust that we were all going to show up and that we were going to be safe and that we were going to, you know, use proper language and follow the rules. Like, I mean, it just was trust building over all of this time. Um and then Derek was about 10 and asked for his first sleepover with mm -hmm. me and my kids. And I was not, that was not something that I came to easily because this, I'd never been at any time we'd had visits or anything. His parents were there. Someone in his family was there. So I was never there alone with him. And I'd never been alone with him under the same roof since the hospital. Mm. And I just, as soon as his, when, he, so he came over, I said, yes, finally. And, and my husband and I talked about it. We talked about it with the kiddos and the kids make it so easy, right? Kids make things so simple. It's like, they'll go up and like, I mean, they're licking the playground at the McDonald's play place together. Like we're best friends. And like, there's nothing that keeps them blocked from being able to just be with other people. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and I'm just sitting here all in my feelings and freaking out about the kids hanging out or what, you know, and they were just like, it's all, you know, it's all good. So I was like, okay. So, but when his dad dropped him off, and shut the door I instantly just like I was in freeze mode I felt paralyzed like oh my gosh what if something happens to him while he's under my roof like I'm not his mom but I'm his mom like what if something happens to him and my husband was like well I'm gonna go get pizza Are you and I was like don't you dare leave this <laughs> like dude leave me alone with him I cannot do this um and I didn't sleep the whole time like I was very aware that he was under my roof and it is very weird it's just the craziest feeling because my heart's been living outside of my body and now he's back in the other room and that first time he left after the sleepover when I'd actually spent time with him and kind of was his mother a little bit quote-unquote mother for a weekend when he left I thought I was gonna I thought it was gonna kill me it was it was so hard and now we're at a space where it got easier and easier where he could come and tackle me through the front door and come and hang out and it was awesome. And then he could go and tackle his mom in the front lawn and be excited to go back home. Like we just learned to create space for the fact that we both matter to him. And so there's space for both of us to exist. Mm -hmm. And that took some time and some work and our own individual healing and, and awareness. But now we're both in it because we both matter to him. Mm -hmm. And it's not a competition or a jealousy or a I'm the real mother or not the real mother. We're not in that space with each other. And that helps Derek want and need and can have access to us both. Yeah. Well, and that's the most important thing in all of it, right? Is him. <laughs> Ultimately, that's what brings right. you all together. Right. He's the string that ties you together. So 
Wow, that is such a cool story, though. And I mean, amazing that over time, he's now 17, almost 18. And now you guys have this great relationship, which looking back 18 years ago, I'm sure wasn't even an idea in your mind at all. No, ma'am. No. no. <laughs> so you've now gone through all of this. What are some of the things that you wish you would have known or people around you would have done differently to make the whole process of this easier on you and a better experience overall? Um. You know, I think it's hard because I still have my my closest family, parents and uh, siblings and stuff that still have never um, have never seen him since the hospital. And so I think there's some stuff that's just still their own stuff that they just don't deal with that makes that um, really complicated. Mm-hmm. So relationships with my personal fam, with my own family that I love and care about so deeply have become, have had to become very compartmentalized that I know that I can only have relationships with them on this level, but we can't have this be a part of it, um, which is really tough. So I wish I would have known then how much surrounding support my whole family would have needed because this happened to them too. Like they were in the throes of it. And I know for my parents, you know, especially those first five years, like, I know that my mom just waited for a call in the middle of the night from a police officer that I was dead somewhere. Like, I know I put my parents through that. So they're watching me go through this, but have little to no understanding themselves about what I was going through and what I was feeling. And um, so I wish there would have been more extent for the support people of the biological mothers. I wish there would have been more support for them to help Mm -hmm. them understand how to help me better. Um, I definitely wish there was way more conversation and we've come a long way because even, even then the case work, the caseworkers weren't trained to talk about grief and trauma work. They didn't, we, I mean, we're barely coming around to even believing that those things exist outside of, you know, and so we're just, I, there was just no conversation around it. So there was no preparation for what that was going to look like. Um, there's also some things about open adoption that are really obviously amazing and that I wouldn't, I mean, I wouldn't change it, but there are things about navigating openness. I think, especially for the birth mom who has no rights, but is expected to be in a lot of spaces emotionally that is really, really complicated. And I don't think there's a lot of education around how to navigate openness and what openness is even supposed to mean or look like. Um, you know, because we're, we're in this space now where we're like, we well, got to do what's best for the child. You got to do what's best for the child. So you got to show up no matter what you got to show for no, no matter what, you know, and I'm going, I actually like physically don't feel like I can like show up right now. Like, because, because I'm living the trauma all the time because it's a current thing and a, a thing that's happening. Um, I, so those boundaries. yeah. So that's really hard to know that you can do that without mm-hmm. feeling like you're going to add more like secondary rejection to your child or like it's so complicated even to just set a simple boundary mm-hmm. in an adoption situation especially when these requests are coming from like the the adoptive kiddos that it's there's not enough support and professionals that are trained enough to help you navigate that mm-hmm. yeah that's a really good point cuz uh, again that would be extremely complicated. I mean, boundaries are already a complicated thing to deal with, but like, yeah, we're also, we're not all great at it. Yeah, no, definitely not. I the, the podcast that was just released last week on Wednesday was specifically on boundaries, especially for people with mental <laughs> illness yeah. issues, because like with my anxiety, setting boundaries is like, ooh, yeah. that's a whole thing yeah. in and of itself. But especially when you're dealing with like a kid and like you know feeling like they're gonna feel rejected even more you know around yeah yeah that's a really good point oh my gosh I wouldn't have even thought about that yeah so we're so we're in spaces a lot of you know families are because openness is the norm and what we're wanting to do in domestic infant adoption specifically around the country we're in spaces that we know it's better for the kids we have research and we know it's better from what we learned from like the baby scoop era and things like that. But we don't actually know 
how to do it. We just know we're supposed to do it. We're told that we're supposed to do it, but we don't know how to do it. So I don't know, maybe 10 years from now, we'll learn that maybe it wasn't always like a great idea, but, um, but there's just a lot of things that we're learning, um, that are really, really hard in openness that I'm like, and sometimes I know, like, and I've heard from countless moms that they're just, that had closed adoptions too. They're just like, man, the, from the birth mom specifically, they're just like, man, there's just some stuff about openness that I just think is a load of crap that I would hate. Like it's hard. And we, when you're in a position where you feel like there's an obligation because for, because there was an exchange of human life in this, because there was this child involved at the center and I gave you this, so you owe me, or I'm obligated to you because you gave this gift. And so if I don't give you everything that you want, then I feel guilty. We ping pong off of each other in those spaces from the adoptive side to the biological side all the time, um, because we're not really qualified or um, educated on really how to set boundaries in such a complex way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause it's not surface level. Every boundary that's made feels like punishment or a rejection in this space specifically. And I know that this isn't the only space where that exists, but it is very high end in adoption. Um, and so learning boundary skills that, that are more helpful is, is something that I wish we would have known mm-hmm. back then. And so now we're learning it as adults and we're, it's a mess. <laughs> I think that's where we're all at at this point, because it's just a mess, yeah. but Hey, yeah. we're getting the skills so that then we can make it better for the next generation and they don't have to be our age trying to figure it out. <laughs> I don't know. Well, we've lot. talked about a lot of the hard things that came from the adoption. What do you think are some of the good things that came from your adoption journey? You know, I get this question a lot. Um, and it's usually on the side, like, do you regret, you know, your decision to place your son and things like that? And when I look at the the positive things about adoption, I mean, I would not be the person I am without it. I, mm-hmm. I just wouldn't. Um I mean, besides the obvious things about, I wouldn't have ever met my husband. I wouldn't have the kids that I have, you know, all of those kinds of things definitely um, at that crossroad definitely put me on a new path that brought amazing things to my life, amazing healing things, amazing opportunities to work and serve in ways that I never thought possible. Um, And my son's an amazing kid. He's an amazing, amazing kid. And his mom that was in the grind parenting him is such a part of that. But I know that so much of that comes from me too and and his biology. And I get to see so many of those little quirky things that he does that I'm like, oh, you get that from your birth dad or you get that, you know, there's just so many little magical things that I love learning about him. Um, One of the greatest joys in my life is watching my three kids together. It's such a blessing and it's absolutely amazing to watch the kids that I parent and have Derek be here with them how simple and easy it is to just love and be with each other and it's crazy because like the birth order shifts when he's here because when he's at his home he's the baby at his home when he's here is the oldest and then my daughter's the oldest here and then Derek's here and she's the middle kid while he's here it's like this so it's just watch this dynamic shift and watch these kids like adjust to their roles um depending on which sibling is around and um it's really fun but as far as just adoption nationally, I think it has just been really amazing to watch individual homes and professionals' minds just cracked wide open on on what we're learning and the offerings that are available and the education to continually be better to serve better um, and to even have a small voice in that has been really has been really amazing. Um, I. You know, I, if people would just flat out ask me, would you choose adoption again? My answer would be yes, because my circumstance is what it was like for what I, for my circumstance then. And with the information that I had, I I made the best choice that I could. Mm -hmm. And I, I think we've done a lot of things really, really well, um, in the aftermath, in our own little individual relationship. Um, I think we, that I'm really proud of some of the 
ways that we've done some of the things in the aftermath. Yeah. Well, I love that. And I, I, again, I applaud you for sharing your story because like you said, like too often we feel like we're so alone in the things that we're going through when we especially go through like those big traumas. Um, so the fact that you're sharing your story to show other people that they're not alone is huge. Um, and like you said, you, you're bringing so much awareness and light to this, you know, really untalked about subject. So thank you so much for doing that and sharing and being thank so you. vulnerable. Um, where do we find you? What things do you have going on? What support do you have available for birth moms? All of the things. Yeah. So my, I spend all my time on Instagram. It's the only social media platform that I can spend any <laughs> amount of time on. Uh, but I'm at Big Tough Girl on everything. You can find me at bigtoughgirl.com. Um, all of our resources, we offer um, monthly free online support groups for any birth mother that wants to come to the table um, and have a free support group with women all over the country. We have in-person support groups all over the country. Um, and we have a list on our website of where they can find if they're in a certain state, if they have a group. I offer webinars and adoption education for adoptive parents um, all the time on my social media and um, like once a month in adoption education. Um, and we work and train professionals. So if there's professionals um, that want to learn more about birth mom grief and trauma and um, that loss and adoption and need support to help their communities better understand their staff, better understand their volunteers, better understand. I'm available for that as well. Perfect. Well, thank you so much again for coming yes. on. I thank you for having me. Yes. I appreciate it. Y'all wasn't that just incredible. Thank you for being here with me today. And if you loved this episode, please leave us a review and share and tag us on all your socials. We'll see you next time.